Chapter 14 of The Romance of Modern Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 14 The Messengers of Space. The previous chapter dealt with those comets which are known to belong to the solar system, and which are thus always subject to the influence of the sun. In the present chapter, attention is directed to the large comets, which are either visitors to the solar system from the depths of space, or which, if they do revolve around the sun, move out to distances so enormous that we cannot with certainty pronounce them to be members of the sun's family. Many of the most famous comets which have ever appeared belong to these two classes. Some of the comets contained in the second class probably belong to the solar system, but their periods are so long that astronomers do not know whether or not they will ever return. For instance, the second comet of 1824 has been calculated to have a period of millions of years. The first comet of 1863 has been said to revolve in nearly two million years, the comet of 1680 in over 15,000 years, and so on. But no one can implicitly trust these estimates, as much uncertainty surrounds them. Such comets might, in their long journeys in space, be attracted from their paths by dark stars or meteor streams, and would thus be lost forever to the solar system. They cannot be regarded as permanent members of the solar system. Most of the really grand comets which have been seen, with the exception of Halley's Comet at its appearances, have belonged to either of these two classes. The Comet of 1264, a magnificent object which was supposed to have been identical with the Comet of 1556, was expected on this supposition to return about 1858. But, it was not seen again, and consequently it is doubtful if the two comets were really identical. In 1264, popular superstition fixed on the comet as a presage of the death of Pope Urban IV. A remarkable comet, known as de Chazel's Comet, appeared in 1744. It had no fewer than six tails. De Chazel, the discoverer, has left a very detailed description of the object. He wrote as follows. The sky was quite overcast from the 1st to the 7th of March, but on the last named day the clouds became broken and gave us some hope of seeing the comet's tail. I was prepared myself uh, for seeing over again just about what I had seen during the closing days of February. At four o'clock on the morning of March 8th, I went downstairs with a friend into the garden with the east facing us. This friend, walking in front of me, startling me by saying that instead of two tails there were five. I hardly believed him, but after having paused from behind several buildings which had partly concealed the eastern horizon from me, I did indeed see five tails. Besides these five tails there was a sixth. This was probably one of the most remarkable comets ever witnessed. The great comet of 1811 was in many ways unique. Discovered on 26th of March, 1811, it was last seen on August 17th, 1812, nearly 17 months later. The tail, 
when seen at its best in the middle of October, stretched into space for the distance of a hundred million miles, while its breadth was fifteen millions. Measurements made by Herschel indicated that the diameter of the nucleus of the comet was 428 miles. A famous German astronomer calculated its orbit and estimated that its greatest distance is 14 times that of Neptune, and its period over 3,000 years. Another magnificent comet appeared in 1843. This was described as a grand and wonderful sight for the extraordinary distance of one-third of the heavens, the nucleus being perhaps about the size of the planet Venus. This remarkable comet, one of the brightest which has ever been seen, was detected in the end of February 1843 in the southern hemisphere. After the middle of March, the comet became visible in the northern hemisphere. The remarkable feature about the comet of 1843 was its near approach to the sun. Its central portion was within 78,000 miles of the orb of the day, so that only a little over 30,000 miles separated the surface of the sun and the comet. The result of this near approach was that the comet whirled past its perihelion point at the amazing rate of 366 miles per second. In two hours and 11 minutes, it described half of the curvature of its oval-shaped orbit, while, as one astronomical writer has pointed out, in traveling over the remaining half, many hundreds of sluggish years will doubtless be consumed. In many ways, the comet of 1843 was a remarkable object. Its tail streamed into space for two hundred millions of miles. The next brilliant comet was detected by Donati at Florence on June 2, 1858, as a little round nebulous mass, very faint, in the constellation Leo, and is considered by most astronomers to have been the grandest comet of the 19th century. At first, no one suspected that the faint little telescopic object would develop into so magnificent a stellar spectacle as the comet of Donati. In the middle of July, a nucleus developed. In the middle of August, a tail began to make its appearance, and by the beginning of September, it was visible to the unaided eye. By the twelfth of that month, the nucleus of the comet shone with a brilliance equal to that of the pole star. From this date, a magnificent celestial spectacle was assured. Occupying a favorable position in the northern heavens, it was in a most famous position for observation. This comet, as Mr. G. F. Chambers has pointed out, has not often been equaled in the intense brilliance of its nucleus, and the unusual and, so to speak, artistic configuration of its tail, which features the absence of the moon in the early part of October, enabled spectators to view to the very best advantage. The passage of the comet in front of Arcturus on October 5th will ever remain treasured in the memory of those who saw it. The late Miss Clark confirms this estimate. She says, The most striking view was presented on August 5th, when the brilliant star Arcturus became involved in the brightest part of the tale, and during many hours contributed, its luster undiminished by the interposed nebulous screen, to heighten the grandeur of the most majestic celestial spectacle of which living memories retain the impress. The comet was followed by astronomers until March 4, 1859, 
when it disappeared from view of the largest telescopes then in existence. Various estimates have been made of the period, such as 1879 years, 2,040 years, and 2,138 years. One calculation suggested that Donati's comet was identical with a famous comet which appeared in 146 B.C. and is mentioned in the Chinese annals. But the periods calculated are very uncertain. Estimates, probably correct, have been made of the dimensions of the nucleus and the tail of the comet. The tail was 14 million miles long on 30th August, and seems to have reached its maximum length on 10th October, when it streamed outwards into space for 51 million miles. On the same day, the nucleus was estimated at 630 miles in diameter. The comet was carefully studied by astronomers on both sides of the Atlantic. Good weather prevailed during its nearest approach to the Earth, and consequently it was thoroughly and exhaustively studied. Three years later, another brilliant object, perhaps even more remarkable than Donate's comet, became visible to the Earth's inhabitants. It was discovered on May 13, 1861, in New South Wales, and on 11th June passed its perihelion point. On 29th June it became visible in the Northern Hemisphere. The following description were given by Sir John Herschel, who observed it from Hawkehurst in Kent. The comet, which was first observed here on Saturday night, June 29th, by a resident of the village of Hawkehurst, became conspicuously visible on the 30th, when I first observed it. It then far exceeded in brightness any comet I have before observed, those of 1811 and the recent splendid one not excepted. Its total light certainly far surpassed that of any fixed star or planet, except perhaps Venus at its maximum. The remarkable fact about the great comet was that on the night of 30th June, the Earth and the Moon passed through its tail. The comet was at the time, between the Earth and the Sun, 14 million miles from our planet, while its tail stretched outward for 15 millions of miles. The passage of the Earth through its tail was almost imperceptible. The vast majority of persons never knew that such an event had taken place, and even the astronomers noted only a singular phosphorescence in the sky. Lowe, a meteorologist of the day, remarked that the sky had a yellow oral aspect, and that the sun gave but feeble light, although the sky was cloudless, and at seven o'clock in the evening, although it was the midsummer season, artificial lights had to be used. The fact that our world passed through its tail, and that the inhabitants were unaware of the fact, is the strongest proof of the harmlessness of this large comet. The comet of 1874, discovered by a French astronomer named Cogia at Marseille on 17th April 1874, and since known by his name, was much less brilliant than its predecessor in 1861, but nevertheless was a fine celestial spectacle. In July it became visible to the unaided eye. On the 21st of that month, it was at its nearest point to the Earth, a distance of nine millions of miles. Various estimates have been made of the period in which the comet revolves. One calculation assigned a period of 5,711 years, another a period of 10,455 years. 
the comet of 1880, seen in the southern hemisphere only, was one of the most remarkable cometary bodies. In appearance, it was very similar to the great comet of 1843, and when its orbit was calculated, it was found to revolve in a path almost identical to that famous body. Three of the most distinguished calculators investigated the comet's motions independently, and each found the path of the two bodies almost identical. Two years later, another great comet was discovered by the director of the observatory at Rio de Janeiro. It soon became a magnificent object in the southern hemisphere. Sir David Gill, who observed it from the Cape Observatory, remarked that the comet showed an astounding brilliancy as it rose behind the mountains on the west of Table Bay, and it seemed in no way diminished in brightness when the sun rose a few minutes afterwards. It was only necessary to shade the eye from the direct sunlight with the hand at arm's length to see the comet with its brilliant white nucleus and dense white sharply bordered tail of quite half a degree in length. The comet passed between the earth and the sun on the 17th September, and on the following day was visible in full sunlight close to the orb of day. In Spain it was seen through a passing cloud when very close to the sun. The most remarkable feature of this great comet was the fact that its orbit showed a remarkable resemblance to the great comets of 1843 and 1880. Astronomers were amazed at this discovery. It was at least possible that the comet of 1880 was a return of that of 1843, but for an enormous comet to return in only two years was unthinkable. As the late Miss Clark remarked, a comet with a single passage through the sun's atmosphere encountered sufficient resistance to shorten its period from thirty-seven to two years and eight months must in the immediate future be brought to rest on its surface. The great comet was kept under observation for about six months, but before it disappeared, the opinion was widespread that it was not a return of the comets of 1843 and 1880. In 1887, another comet was discovered with an orbit also similar. Now, the only explanation of the identity of these orbits is that each of these comets were fragments of a larger cometary body which, revolving in the same orbit, had been gradually disrupted into a number of different comets. The comets of 1668, 1843, 1880, 1882, 1887, and probably also another comet seen in 1882. This is proof that comets, unlike the planets, are not lasting, that they are liable to be dissipated into space. This much may be gathered from a study of the movements and orbits of comets. Much more remarkable, however, is the information gained by a study of their physical conditions. After 1882, no very brilliant comets was visible in the northern hemisphere, although in 1901 another bright southern comet was observed. In 1902, Perrine's comet was faintly visible to the unaided eye, but too faintly to attract popular attention. The appearance of the great daylight comet of 1910 came therefore as a pleasant surprise not only to astronomers, but also to the general public. On January 15, 1910, the Johannesburg newspaper, The Leader, informed Mr. Innes, director of the Transvaal Observatory, that they had received the following telegram from the stationmaster at the railway station at Kopjes in the Orange Colony. 
Haley's Comet was seen by Fireman Burke, Driver Tucker, and Guard Marius at 4.45, rising in front of the sun. It was visible for about 20 minutes. The railway employees had seen the brilliant object in the sunrise before the astronomer's sight, and they thought it was Halley's Comet, which was due to return at that time. As soon as the comet was observed, however, it was seen that it could not be Halley's. Warned by this message from the station master, we kept watch on the next morning, but it was cloudy. This morning, January 17th, was also cloudy, but there was a break just above the place of sunrise. At 5.29 standard time, the comet was seen. In a later statement, Mr. Innes said, The earliest date on which this comet was seen in South Africa appears to be Thursday, January 12th at 14 hours, 25 minutes, Greenwich Mean Time, by some workmen at the Transvaal Premier Diamond Mine. A letter from Cullinan, dated January 16th, informed me that on that date, and also on Friday morning, several workmen observed the comet. The comet soon passed the sun and became visible in the evening skies, a magnificent object which attracted much attention. And had it not been for the unfavorable weather in Great Britain at the time, a good deal more would have been seen of it. On the clear evenings, the comet was observed and admired by the average man and closely studied by the astronomer. The comet was observed by the present writer, a Bolerno, Midlothian, on January 22nd, and 29th, observations on other dates being impossible owing to the unfavorable weather. Seen in a two-inch refractor on January 29th, the nucleus was very bright and well-defined, while the head presented resemblance to drawings of Croce's Comet of 1874. Even at the large observatories, it was difficult to get good photographs, owing to its position in the western sky so close to the sunset twilight. The spectrum of the comet was observed by Professor Frost, director of the Yerkes Observatory, on January 24th, when the bright lines of sodium characteristic of many comets were noted. The element cyanogen was also detected. The spectroscopic observations indicated that on January 27th, the comet was receding from the Earth with a considerable velocity. This agrees with its very rapid diminution in brightness. On January 29th, it was well seen. A few days later, it was practically invisible. The lines addressed to the Stranger of Heaven, the Great Comet of 1811, by the Ettrick Shepherd, seemed specially appropriate to the Comet of 1910. Stranger of Heaven, I bid thee hail. Shred from the pall of glory riven, that flashest in celestial gale broad pennon of the king of heaven. Whate'er portends thy front of fire and streaming locks so lovely pale, or peace to man, or judgment dire, stranger of heaven, I bid thee hail. End of chapter 14